Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Jagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit to Jagler. This I podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Mitovite has been producing high-quality feeds and supplements for all walks of equine life for almost 40 years. Mitovite has become a household name in racing and breeding circles with products like Athlete, Formula 3 and Breeder, time-tested products in the breeding barn and on the racetrack. 26 thoroughbred Group 1 winners this season have been on a Mitovite feeding regime. From humble beginnings on the New South Wales Central Coast, Mitovite has become a world leader in equine nutrition. Infrastructure investment in the production mill and close attention to nutritional science keeps Mitovite at a standard of excellence developed over four decades. Check the website, mitovite.com or follow the Mitovite Racing and Breeding Facebook page. The Mitovite brand has earned the respect of horse people all over the world. Peter Robel knew he was in trouble the moment he hit the ground in the early stages of a 1,400-metre maiden at Scone in January of 2014. His mount, a mare called In My Image, jumped away on terms with the field, but on going less than 100 metres, began to buck uncontrollably. Peter was hurled to the track, and at the same time, Rachel Murray was dislodged from her mount. Rachel escaped unhurt, but Peter was horrified to discover that he had no feeling from the neck down. By the time he was admitted to the John Hunter Hospital, some movement had returned, but a short time later, doctors diagnosed severe damage to the C4 and C5 vertebrae. Thankfully, he was back on his feet in a few hours, but suffered ongoing neck pain and tingling sensations to the hands and feet. A few months later, neurosurgeons didn't mince their words when they strongly advised Peter not to return to race riding. Although devastated, he didn't let the grass grow under his feet. He immediately took on the role of assistant to Wendy Walter, whose husband Guy had died suddenly just weeks earlier, and later joined David Van Dyke, who was then training at Randwick. When David moved to Queensland towards the end of 2014, the Sedgenhoe Group offered Peter the opportunity to train in his own right. Seven years on and Peter Robel is still in those Randwick stables and has proven that he can train thoroughbreds as well as he rode them. It's high time we caught up with a great horseman, Peter Robel. Thanks for joining the podcast, Pete. Lovely to have you on board. My pleasure, John. First up, congratulations on a Randwick win recently with a horse called Finally Realise. You're the trainer and you part own him as well. Yeah, thanks. It was a nice little result. He was just a cheap little horse I brought from the Classic Soul in partnership with Jeff Baldacino, who's been a, a great supporter of mine and a great friend since I started training. And, um, it was good that he was able to win a race in the city for us and he certainly paid back his purchase price. Going back to the race fall at Scone early uh, the previous year, what was the actual definition of the injury, Pete? Could you describe it to us? So basically I, I bruised my spinal cord where the C4, C5 vertebrae are. So it's a bit like kinking a hose. Mm. Um, I'll always basically have that bruised, weakening spot of the spinal cord for the rest of my life, even though mm. it's improved o- over the years, it'll never improve to the point where it's as strong as a normal person's spine. So um, as I said, it's got better, but it'll always it'll always be bruised and it'll always just give me little issues here and there along the way. But mm. uh, like anything in life, John, you learn to play the cards you've been dealt and uh, you adjust and live with, you know, the situations you have to. You had constant consultation with your neurosurgeon for months after and you were hoping for the best all the way along. 
And I think yes. it was about July, wasn't it, <coughs> when he gave you the news you didn't want to hear? Well, just like anything, you kind of know in the back of your mind the answer, but you pray for a, a different outcome. Um, so I was seeing Dr. Richard Parkinson at St. Vincent's Private and um, working with him right directly after my race fall, et cetera, and uh, just hoping that time time heals everything, which it does, but it was certainly not going to heal this to the, the capacity where I was going to get back riding. And mm. I think it was about July, something like that. He said, well, um, if you make a comeback to race riding, you know, it'll be in 10 years' time, but mm. I'd be too old for that anyway. So uh, he said that won't happen and you better start looking for other avenues in life. Well, once your training business got up and running, you made the decision to ride work again and you've missed very few mornings since at Randwick. Now, I know you miss race riding, Peter, but this must cushion the blow to some extent. Yeah, it does. I, I once again spoke to my surgeon and he wasn't real keen on the whole idea of riding track work. But like I, I did explain to him, well, we can't live live life in a bubble and mm. sometimes you've got to take a risk and do things you love and I wanted to go back riding work and basically he said, well, you know, just be smart about what you're doing and what you ride and mm. all the rest of it. And uh, he gave me clearance to go back riding work and whilst – it's certainly um, not race riding. It, it, it's a great thrill, mm. you know, every morning just to be able to get out of bed and ride track work. It probably means mm. a lot more now to me than what it did when I was race riding. When mm. I was race riding, it was a, more of a hassle than anything. Now it's something I look forward to doing. Mm. Well, I bet it's, uh, it's even better uh, when the horse underneath you feels like it can win a race in the very near future. Well, it, it's probably... Double, double-edged knife, to be quite honest. It's on when you're training horses. You'll be riding something and it uh, gets to that stage where it's time to give them a squeeze and see what you've got. And mm. Some mornings you walk off the track really happy and other mornings you walk off the track thinking, well, it's going to be hard work winning a race with this. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> it has yeah. the ups and downs. The, dis- the disappointments come a lot quicker, I suppose, when you're riding them work because as soon as you give them a squeeze at the furlong, mm. You've kind of got a fair idea which way you're heading with them. Yeah, of course, particularly somebody of your long experience. You're very vigilant in monitoring the old spinal injury. I know you continue to see the neurosurgeon once or twice a year. You have scans, you have x-rays, and you just keep an eye on it. Yeah, I go I go every 12 months and um, get an MRI done on my neck and go and visit uh, the neurologist. And just I, I think it's very important to... Uh, know that it's it's healing in the right way. As soon as I go back and it's going the wrong way, well then it's going to ta- going to be time to reassess what I'm doing. So that's one of the things you can't take for granted, John. Mm. It's very important to keep on top of it and make sure that it is still going forward, and not going backwards. So you know, I make sure I do that every year, and I think it's important to do so. You've saddled up many winners since switching roles. And you've had a few nice horses too. Your personal favourite, I believe, is Ninth Legion on two counts. You rode him to victory four times, including in a Villiers Stakes, and later you took over his training from Team Hawks and you won two stakes races with him, including the Eyeliner in Queensland. So he was a little bit special, Ninth Legion. He was he, he was special, John, as... One of them things, no matter how long I train for, he'll always be uh, special to me in the fact that he gave me great thrill when I was a jockey. Uh, I think I won a Group 2 Villiers on him, mm. and um, he was a lovely horse then. And then once I started training, I was able to win a couple of stakes races with him, which, you know, was a great buzz. So it doesn't matter how many horses come along or how long I train for, he, he's always going to be front and centre of yeah. horses that, you know, have been really good to me and helped out both my careers in both avenues. I've been a jockey and also training. And, Mm. you know, he was a wonderful horse to go with it. You trained a loping for only a short (coughs) time. In fact, I think you gave a four starts only in 2016. You won the silk stocking with a loping on the Gold Coast. That's a listed race. And I think Tegan Harrison was the rider that day, a very talented girl. Yeah, lovely girl, Tegan, and um, 
she was just she 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 hadn't had a ride for me um in, in my short training career and uh eloping come from peter morgan in in melbourne and Sedgenard brought 50 percent of it uh to send to stud for breeding purposes and she was kind of just treading water until the stud season came along and I set it for the silk stocking and I just remember saying to the owners that I think Tegan is one jockey that would suit the mare. Mm. She was a free-running mare um, and she was much better with just someone on her that would just sit there quiet and let her do her own thing. And I put Tegan on her and she won that race up there, very impressive. And, you know, it was a great result for everyone concerned involved in that mare. You got a horse called Power of Attorney from the Tony Vassal stable and uh, you quickly won a couple of races with him, including one in the city. Yeah, he's another lovely old horse that come from Tony Vassal when he retired. His owners live in Hong Kong and through a connection of a friend of mine, they sent me sent me that horse to train and whilst he's in the in the paddy cabinet spell now, he's been a good good horse and a good money spinner for his connections. He's won a couple of races and more so he's always picked up a check when he goes to the races. So he's just one of them nice horses that's easy to deal with in the stables. He goes about his business with no fuss whatsoever. He eats, he sleeps, and he goes out and gives 100% every time he turns up to the races. So, oh, God. you know, when it comes to training horses, that's yeah. pretty much all you can ask. You, you couldn't ask for much more. No, exactly. You can't. You can't. They're just wonderful horses to deal with. All Cylinders has been good for the stable, Pete. You've won four races with him all up, including one at Canterbury and one at Mooney Valley. You slipped him south there at one stage and you put Linda Meach on him. Yeah, he's been a great great result for the stable. He was another horse. I think I paid 30000 for him. And a funny story, I was at the Magic Moons and um, I just liked him. He was a testarossa and I brought him and then Foxy Robinson, who a lot of people know, uh, I rang him up. We'd been friends for a long time, and I just I said, I just brought your horse. Mm. And he goes, oh, all right. He goes, how much did it cost me? I said, oh, don't worry about that, mate. Just write the check out. <laughs> so <laughs> anyway, that that was him, and he I think he's, he's 170, 180,000. But yeah. anyway, his owner, one of his part owners lived in Melbourne, and he said, oh, if the opportunity ever rose to bring him to Melbourne, mm. you know, it would be great. So I slipped in down there to a 955 at Mooney Valley. I'd known Linda for a long time and I just thought that she would suit him. Mm. Uh, her riding style would suit the horse. And he was uh, good enough to go down there and win quite convincingly. And mm. um, as I said, he's been a good little horse for the stable. And uh, any horse that you make a profit out of is certainly a good horse. Mm. See, Peter, it's a funny thing. Sydney trainers... Uh, don't even give thought to slipping a horse to Melbourne uh, for the right kind of race. But have you noticed just lately, Gary Portelli has done it a couple of times. Bjorn Baker uh, sent one down there recently, which won. Um, and you were doing it two years ago. Yeah, yeah. As long as you've got the right horse, you know, it's a little bit of an exercise and it's got to, you know, the costs have to outweigh the exercise, so to speak. But you've got the right horse and you know, the right races on, well, I think I think it's certainly well worth doing. And, mm. you know, just, you know, I remember um, Peter Snowden, when he trained at Dolphin, used to do it quite regularly when he trained at Warwick Farm. They, they'd mm. race here and then all of a sudden they just pop up. And I think Hawks have been doing it for years. They, they'll race here and then pop up in Melbourne. And mm. I think it's well worth the exercise if you've got the right horse and the right race. Mm. You'd love a barn full of horses like Alison of Tuffy. Gee, she's been a good mare for the stable. She's won $250,000 from five wins and eight placings, and she's won races at Kembla, Gosford, Hawkesbury. She won one on the Kenzo track and a stakes race at Eagle Farm. They're hard to find. Yeah, she was she was certainly an old, old war horse, and uh, she's going to stud now, God bless her. But um, she, she was a great story, her, her owner, Bretta. Uh, he owned the he owned the dam and he bred her and um, just wanted to try and win a black type race with her. So she'd been very consistent throughout her career and she ended up winning in the city because I said to him, "There's three stages we'll uh, follow with this mare: is a to win a race with her, mm. b to win a city race with her, and 
the third one would be to try and win a stakes race with her. And I said, and if she's ever going to win a stakes race, it'll be in Brisbane because mm. it's just a level lower than the stakes races here in Sydney. And anyway, she'd managed to win a race and she'd managed to win one in town. And I said to him, oh, there's a stakes race in Brisbane in December. I think she can win. We'll aim her for that. And mm. it was a great, great result. He flew up for the occasion and um, he backed her at 100 to 1. Oh. I think he got $126 mm. uh, when he backed her and um, she managed to put a big head in front on the line and yeah. get, get the right result and it was a great day for everyone involved. But, you know, they're just very consistent uh, horses that the great horses have around the stable. Despite winning several races for the Sedgenau group, you suffered the disappointment of losing a number of their horses and that was a hell of a setback at that early stage of your training career. But your next-door neighbour in the Randwick Training Complex came to the rescue. Yeah, it was, it was one of them situations, kind of just sat me straight on my bum, so to speak. Mm. One day I had 20 horses in work, and the next next day I had one horse mm. and still had to pay rent on 20 boxes and mm. still had to find wages for the staff that worked for me at the time. So it was certainly one of them... Um, points in my life I wouldn't want to experience again, but I was training next to Peter Snowden and I rode, rode a few winners for him when I was a jockey and he was training at Warwick Farm and I was mm. friends with Paul and um, he sent me, I think it took him 10 days to send me 19 pre-trainers, so I went from one horse in work to 20 horses in work within, you know, the space of 10 days and certainly if it wasn't for Peter, well, I certainly wouldn't wouldn't be at Randwick training to this point because I simply wouldn't have been able to afford to do do it. So I'll be forever grateful for Peter and Paul for, you know, helping out. And um, it ended up being one of them associations where, you know, they helped me and I helped them. And mm. um, as I said, I'd be forever grateful to them for, mm. you know, stressing out and helping out at, at a time that I certainly needed help. But as we speak, your stables are full up and you're enjoying the patronage of a very solid ownership base. Yeah, it's been terrific probably over the last, probably for the last 12 months I've had to, because I've only got 20 boxes at Ramwick, so, you know, there's quite a bit of juggling you have to you have to do to um, bring horses in and out, but I've managed to build up a good clientele base mm. over the last four or five years, and um, I've got some very, very solid owners, which has been great, and the stable's just grown in capacity every year, so mm. it's certainly one thing that I've worked towards is trying to um, have a full stable all around, which I've managed to do for the last 12 months, and not only that, just, you know, get a good clientele base and uh, certainly be upfront and honest to them owners I've got and do the best job that mm. I can certainly do for them. Now, Peter, word has been filtering through from Randwick that a certain trainer and a former very successful jockey has been the regular track work rider for the celebrated racehorse Classique Legend. Now, Classique Legend went to Hong Kong after his Everest win last year and he disappointed in a Group 1 in December. He had a spell, he came back, he had two barrier trials and sadly he bled, it was a mild bleed from one nostril at Sha Tin, and uh, his preparation there obviously had to be aborted, and he was returned to Sydney to his original trainer, Les Bridge. Now, you take it from there, Peter. Les Bridge paid you a marvellous compliment recently. Yeah, when when the horse was coming back from Hong Kong, Les come and saw me and explained the situation with Classic Legend and um, said that, he, he wants to get him back to the top level um, and win another Everest with him and would I be able to manage to ride the horse work every morning for him mm. in order to, for him to achieve that, And which um, I said, yeah, like no dramas at all. So when the horse returned from Hong Kong, I started riding, riding him work and I ride him work every morning and uh, he, he's a marvellous horse to do anything anything with which uh, 90% of top-line gallopers are very good horses I've found over the years. Mm. They conserve their energy and uh, they go about their business with, you know, minimal fuss and 
I'm sure that uh, between Les, myself and the stable staff, there are these tables that will get the horse back to the top, but he's a marvellous horse to be associated with and he's certainly a marvellous horse to ride work. He's just a, a true gentleman in that in the word. Now, how does he look, Peter? Is he furnished? I reckon I, I had a – I've probably ridden him probably eight or ten times over the last couple of years when Karen McAvoy couldn't come in and gallop him for mm. – you know, he might have been away at carnivals or whatever like that. I'd, I'd fill in and have a spin round on the horse and mm. – I said to Les just the other morning, I reckon the horse is probably 50 or 60 kilos heavier than what he was sure. 12 months ago, just uh, just in himself. And he certainly muscled up and the horse looks absolutely brilliant at this point in time. And mm. his mindset's really good, which I think is probably the most important thing coming back from Hong Kong. They can be a bit sour on the game, but he's a really happy horse at the moment. He's got a bit of a spring in his step. His work's starting to step up at this point in time and he's really enjoying it and certainly can't fold him in his accent or in his demeanour and mm. I'm really pleased with the way he's going. I know Les certainly has a smile on his face and a glow <laughs> in his eye when he sees that horse walk off the track every morning. Oh, yeah. all, he, all he does is ask me, how is he? And I say, yep, we're, mm. we're getting there. We're getting there and um, you can see him smile every time because – yeah. Honestly, he's had a lot of good horses, Les, and he thinks this is his best horse he's ever trained, which is a huge statement. Peter, he could have asked any one of 30 jockeys at Randwick to do the job you're doing, and uh, you're entitled to regard that as a great compliment from a very discerning judge. Yeah, I think I think anyone anyone would have been happy to ride him work every day, and I was, I was honoured when Les asked me to ride him work every morning and help him through the horse's preparation, so um, that that is a good honour, yes. Mm. He had his first gallop on the course proper a week or ten days ago, which prompted a, a little quip from you to Les when he stepped out onto the course proper. Yeah, yeah, he, was having a, he wasn't doing a lot of work. He, he was just going out on the course proper, having a bit of a spin around. And mm. I remember walking on the course proper and Les was there and the horse stopped and had a look and I said, it's amazing, Les, isn't it? I said, the last time this horse stepped foot on the course property, won about $7 million. <laughs> I said, it's amazing to think that, isn't it? And, and said, what, what a win it was. Right, me. Oh, pink. Yeah, but you it, look at the replay, you can't get your head around it. No, it was an amazing win. And as I said, I've got no doubt. Like, it's funny when you ride horses, he, he knew he was on the course proper too, John. Did he? As soon as he cantered off, he, would, he had a spring in his step and – he was, he was a bit more keen in his work than what he normally is like. He knew where he was going, so mm. I thought that that was a really pleasing sign within itself. Pete, I'm sure our listeners would love to hear about your career as a jockey and another form of horsepower that commanded a lot of your attention in Victoria uh, in days gone by. We'll do that after this important break. The $1.3 million Kosciuszko is the world's richest race for country-trained horses and the field is determined by those who draw winning tickets in the Kosciuszko sweepstakes. $5 tickets are now available through the Tab app or your local TAB outlet. 14 winning ticket holders will be drawn on September the 9th. Holders of those winning tickets will have the opportunity to select the horse they'd like to run in their entry and if successful will then negotiate the terms of a prize money split with the owners of that horse. A $5 ticket could make it possible for you or your syndicate of friends to share in the ownership of a runner in a race which in just three runnings has achieved a high profile. Grafton-trained Bell Flyer gave his slot holders a big thrill when he won the first Kosciuszko in 2018. In 2019, it was Handle the Truth, and last year, It's Me from Scone. It's an exciting opportunity for bush horses to take centre stage on one of the biggest race days in the world. It gives punters and racing fans the opportunity to share in the ownership of a horse running in a $1.3 million race. Remember, the 14 winning slot holders will be drawn on September the 9th. A special guest is Peter Robel, who turned to training in 2014 after a very rewarding riding career. Pete, you're one of three kids born and reared in beautiful Benalla on the gateway to the high country in Victoria. 
there wasn't a trace of racing background in the family. In fact, your dad spent much of his working life as a diesel mechanic. So where does your love of horses come from? Uh, it's just, um, it, w- it wasn't a love of horses that I was born with. Mm. It was probably a way to get out of school, to be quite honest, when, <laughs> when I was 15 or 16 and yeah. uh, school was just a drag and um, I, I knew a bloke called Wayne Nichols at Benalla mm-hmm. who, who's still a good friend at this day. So that, you know, that tells you something. That back when I was 16 and we're still very good friends and mm-hmm. I knew Wayne and he said we'd come and work in the stables and then maybe learn to be a jockey. And mm-hmm. I, I honestly had no ambitions to be a jockey but I just thought it was a good way to get out of school. So <laughs> I, I leaped at that. I appreciate your honesty. Now, Wayne had a bomb-proof stable pony at the time and that's where you learned to ride. Yeah, it's amazing how you can remember things, you know, throughout your life and that happened. He had, a, had a, an old mare called Jetta. Mm. And she, was, she was bomb-proof and she was a horse I learned to ride on and I think she was older than me at the time and um, she was a really, really good stable pony and, yeah, that's what I learned to ride on. Mm. You were very lucky at that time to have some tuition from a very good jockey called Jeff Bamford, who seemed to take an interest in your progress. Was Jeff living in the district at that time? He'd, he'd moved up from uh, Melbourne to Benalla to, to probably slow down. He was probably starting to get in the twilight of his career at that time, and mm. I was very lucky to um, have him help me throughout my riding career, and I think for memory, he taught Darren Gouchy and Mick Gouchy to ride back in the day. So yes, he did. Mm. Uh, he, was a, he was a very good rider, and I was very lucky to have him, you know, support me and give me plenty of advice along the way. Mm. Your unforgettable first win was on the 4th of April 1988 at Tatura. The horse was called Caramba, who was trained by a dairy farmer called Jeff Brunsden, and he won an improver's handicap over 2,600 metres. Pete, that's a big ask of a green kid to ride yeah. in such a long race, isn't it? I mean, what tactics did you employ? Uh, well, he, oh, oh, Jeff, he was, he was a dairy farmer from, I think, I think he was at New Merck or one of them places at the time, and um, mm. he said, I oh, just, just sit on and roll around, and he'll pick up the bridle about the half mile, and when he does that, just let him go, you know. He did. I think he'd had about thirty something starts. He was still a maiden, <laughs> and um, so Tatcher is not the biggest track I've been. It was probably about sixteen hundred meters around. So I think they started at the thousand, and mm. luckily I didn't get the laps mixed up, and I just sat there, and um, I think I just kind of flapped on it the whole way around, and the horse stamina kicked in, and he just kept running, and. Yeah, he ended up winning a 2,600 metre race, so that was the first winner I rode. Goodness me. Well, that's a rarity. I mean, you, you'd be flat out finding another jockey whose first winner was over a distance like that. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Incredible. And, yeah, it was amazing, actually. You can't remember the name of your first city winner, or at least you couldn't the other day, but you know it was at Caulfield. Uh, I think um, it was called Simple as That. Oh, was that the first? Yeah, well, simple as that was very good to you. Uh, in fact, you won a hat trick on – he was a grey, yeah. wasn't he? he was a grey and I ended mm-hmm. up in the Victoria Handicap, which is a Group 3 race in in Melbourne on him. And mm-hmm. he was a terrific old horse. He ended up, I think, around third on him in a Goodwood, which is a Group 1 race in Adelaide. And yeah. He was a terrific old horse. Mm-hmm. You also won a Wood End Cup on him. Yeah, Wood End Cup. I, I think he won. Back in them days, John, as you know, like, it's a bit different now how times have changed, but – Back in them days, those sort of horses would win 12, 15, 20 races, you know. Mm. And um, I think he was one of them sort of horses. He might have won a dozen races or 14 races and mm. he won a Wood End Cup and I think he won a lot of good races and he was just a solid old, basically a solid, solid old welder horse. Mm. Is it just possible that he was the best horse you've ridden? Look, he, he was certainly, I don't think he was the best horse I've ridden, but he was he was certainly up there with him and, mm. you know, he'll, he'll certainly stay as one of the most favourite horses I've ridden, um, but I don't I don't really know when it comes to, like, the best horse you've ridden. No. Um, you've ridden better ones yeah. in track work, obviously. Yeah. Riding well, one now goes all right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've ridden, I think I've ridden, you know, better horses, like your song was a, 
yeah. extremely good galloper. And um, mm. but you know, it all depends. Um, I think I just like riding winners and just like riding horses, basically. Mm. You didn't go to town often because you usually had a full book at the corresponding country meeting on Saturdays and you preferred to look after loyal clients on the country circuit. Yeah, look, I probably, I probably, uh, as a kid growing up, or not so much as a kid growing up, but throughout my 20s and that, I might have just lacked that bit of ambition. Like, I never really had the ambition to be the number one jockey or um, to go to the city and ride 50 winners in town. Mm. I was really happy just riding around the country. I love riding around them country tracks. And, mm. uh, you know, I could go to town and ride one or two, or I could go to Wagga and have seven or eight rides. So I'd much prefer to go to Wagga and mm. um, ride there. So I never had that that ambition. And I don't know whether it was because I didn't grow up around horses and I didn't didn't grow up around the racing industry. So mm. when, I, when I entered the racing industry, it was no big thing, so to speak. No. Um, so I hadn't lived that kind of life growing up and I was, I was more than happy to go to Wagga and Albury and just ride winners and mm. enjoy enjoy life as much as I could rather than mm. going to the city to hopefully ride a winner. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's what I was happy doing and mm. I certainly don't regret that at any stage. Peter, I can clearly remember the first time you and I met at a Benalla race meeting in 2002. Now, I was there doing a story on Beverly Buckingham, who was back on her feet after that career-ending fall in Tasmania, and she had just begun her training career. She had a runner that day at Benalla, may have even been her first runner as a trainer. I was standing with Bev just outside the jockey's room, and out walked P. Roble, who was riding that horse, a filly, I think it was, a chestnut filly for Beverly Buckingham, and she introduced us outside the Benalla Jockey's Room. Yeah, it's a long, it's a long time ago, John. You've got mm. a better memory than me, but, uh, yeah, I met, met Bev when her and her father, um, they moved over to Benalla from Tasmania after a, a horrible accident and um, I started writing work for her and uh, formed a good friendship with her and I wrote a few winners for them in the time that they were at Benalla. So, mm. yeah, that's a long time ago. Yep, Bev's filly... Went good enough on the day, good enough to keep trying. I think you ran fourth or fifth. She had a chance, but she just showed a little flash of ability. I'm not sure if, if she eventually won a race. I can't remember, John. No. It's 20 years too, ago. Yeah, yeah, it's too, it's too long for me. I think, um, yeah, well, I couldn't honestly say if it won a race or not, to be quite honest with you. Mm. At what point in your life... Did you get the oval track speedway racing bug? Because it bit hard. Yeah, it was later, later on in, in my life, my father, back in his younger days, was heavily involved in the speedway racing. And naturally, back then, uh, once mum, mum had us children, well, he had to give that up um, and concentrate on going to work, I suppose, to be mm. a family. And then. It was late. It was later on in 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 my life that we decided to get a car and uh, deck one out and got into the speedway racing and mm. uh, got got into it probably as big as what we could at the time. Yeah, I was always um, always riding and most speedway meetings were a Saturday afternoon or a Saturday night, which mm. made things a little bit tough. So I'd generally go to the races, uh, fulfil my commitments there, and then drive to wherever the speedway track was and mum and dad, they would take the car and set everything up and then I'd just turn up, drive it and then yeah. go home the next day basically. But mm. uh, it, was, it was a great hobby and I certainly wish I had time to do it yeah. right now. You competed in the sedans all over Victoria and you actually ran third in a major event on one occasion in South Australia. That was a buzz. Yeah, we went over to South Australia to run in the, the South Australian titles. I think they were at Murray Bridge, if I can remember correctly, and mm. um, we ran third, so that was a good result. And and um, it was always a great weekend away when we'd go away car racing. Uh, we'd go for the weekend, and mm. we went quite good at it. You know, for the time, we could we could do it. So 
as I've said, I wish I could still do it now and you just never know. I've still got it parked in the garage at mum and dad's place ready to go. So Yeah, VL Commodore, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, VL Commodore, mm. painted green and it's parked there all ready to go. So hopefully when COVID settles down and everything opens back up that we might pull it out of the shed, give it a dust off and mm. take it for a spin. Do you good. Now here's a question for you. When did you first meet Clary Connors? a well-known Sydney trainer who played a major role in getting you to Sydney. When did you first meet him? I can't remember when I actually first met him. I, I was riding around the Wagga Albury districts and then Clary rang me up and I think I had a few rides for him. It was probably the 12 months prior to when EI kicked in, so I'm not sure mm. what year EI was. But well, I can tell it might you. might have been 2010. Two, seven, 2007. Well, I probably I probably first originally met Clary about probably 2016. Mm. Had a few rides, rode a few winners for him, and um, met him that way. And then he started pestering me about coming to Sydney to mm. ride full time for him. He had an owner, uh, Dr. Bateman, that he trained for, who was keen for me to come to Sydney. Mm. But I was never I was never actually interested in doing that. And yeah. um, I just said, no, why would I want to come to Sydney, Clary? Mm. You know, I'm quite happy doing what I'm doing here in the country. And mm. he, he was adamant I should come. And as I said at the time, he was training for Dr. Bateman, who was quite adamant he wanted me to come. And mm. so basically, anyone that knows Clary knows that eventually he did wear me down. Yeah. <laughs> and he did, he did wear me down. In the end, I said, Look, I'll come for three months. Yeah. I'll come, have a look, and go home. And I. Mm. I certainly had no intentions whatsoever of staying. Mm. I, I said to my wife at the time, I said, look, I'm going to go to Sydney for three months, mm. ride a beer for Clary, and then mm. uh, it'll just basically get him off my back, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I come to Sydney and it was, look, it was probably one of them things, John, where I was lucky, but I was unlucky. Yeah. I reckon about a month after I turned up in Sydney, I broke out. Oh, yeah. So, there, so therefore I couldn't ride in Victoria. Mm because of EI, so I think I was stuck, stuck in Sydney for six months and mm. at the time Clary had a good stable of horses and we had a lot of quick success and that mm. just cemented me staying in, in Sydney and I've been here ever since, so mm. you know, I'll be forever grateful to Clary for getting me up to Sydney and, uh, yeah, the rest is history. Mm. Well, your first takes win in Sydney was for Clary and Derby Racing when you rode our Joan of Arc to win the 2008 Jim Crack Stakes. If ever uh, there was a classic, precocious, early-going filly, it was our Joan of Arc. Yeah, she was a lovely little filly and um, she'd been shown great, great signs in her work and in her trials and she went to the Jim Crack and won the Jim Crack quite convincingly and, as you say, that was my first stakes winner for Clary and mm. that certainly got the ball rolling in my riding career in Sydney. Mm. Well, you were quickly getting rides from a range of stables and it was Anthony Cummings who provided you with a very important win on dealer principal in the Group 1 Rose Hill Guineas. That was a great kick-along. It was a terrific kick-along and I was probably, I was just lucky at the time. I was riding a bit for Anthony, riding a little bit of work and Larry Cassidy actually rode dealer principal and anyway, I think he went around the week prior to the Rose Hill Guineas. Mm. It might have been two weeks prior. And Tullock I think, stakes, little, I think. the Tullock stakes, yeah. Yeah, it was a little bit disappointing and Larry elected to ride something else in the Guineas. Mm. And I think at that time, like most of like your better riders were already locked into riding horses in the Guineas and mm. Anthony Cummins rang and said, well, if you want to ride him, you can ride him, and, which mm. naturally wasn't like I'd have – have anything riding in the race at, at that time and mm. I rode him and, uh, you know, thankfully the horse come out and he, he won the Rose Hill Guineas, which was my first mm. Group 1 race and he, it's another one of those winners you'll never forget, really. Mm. Well, you rode the same horse in Nom de Jure's Derby on a heavy 10 track. He ran fourth, not all that far from the winner. Did he have his chance? Yeah, he, he had his chance that day and Nom de Jure was just, you know, too good and 
I don't think Dillard Principal was quite as effective on a heavy track. So no. he, was, he was a good solid horse and I think he was more genuine than what he had ability-wise, which carried him a long way. Mm. Now, the following autumn, Pete, it was a Group 1 glory again. You'd won a listed race on one more, no more at Randwick. Then came a good fourth in the Sires Produce, followed by a dominant win in the Champagne Stakes. This all happened in the early days of the Patanac Empire. Jason Coyle trained the winner. Yeah, yeah, Jason Jason trained the winner and um, I was riding, how that come about, I was riding for Anthony Cummings at the time who was actually training for Padnack mm. for Nathan Tinkler and <coughs> all of a sudden, you know, he wanted to conquer the world and have his own stable and all the rest of it. So um, he asked me to be stable rider for Padnack Farm. Jason Cole come down from, I think it was at Newcastle at the time Mm. They set up stables at Warwick Farm. Yeah. And um, I was stable rider for, for Padnack Farm for, I think it was about 18 months, maybe something like that. And um, mm. had a lot of good horses and one will no more was certainly one of them was a very dominant win in the in the Champagne Stakes. And um, I think it was possibly Jason Coyle's first Group 1 winner as well. So it was a good day for the whole team around now, the following year, 2009, you snared another Group 1, this time on a bolter, a long shot called Linky Dink in the TJ Smith Classic in Brisbane, now called the JJ Atkins. This was another Patternack filly trained by John Thompson, who'd taken over uh, by that stage. And, Peter, it was the only race she ever won, a Group 1. How the hell does that happen? I think I think actually Jason Cole was still training at the time. Was he? Um, it was just prior to John Thompson taking over Padnack Stud, mm. uh, Padnack Farm. Sorry, mm. and uh, yeah, that was uh, it. Was just one of them things. Nathan wanted his horses to run in the best races, and it was it was a Group One race in Brisbane, and the form had been okay, but I think she was probably about one hundred and fifty to one or something, or something <laughs> ridiculous like that, and um, went up and rode her and. I just remember Glenn Boss. I think he was on one of the fancied runners, and I think he led and got to about the 300. And I, I loomed up beside him, and I reckon he looked at me as if to say, "Who the hell is this?" <laughs> That's right. And she actually won very yeah. convincing that day. But it was mm. just—I think it was one of those days in racing where mm. it was the right day, the right track, yeah. the right tempo, and everything just fell into place perfectly. And mm. she come come away with it. Uh, went into the race as a maiden and come out of Group 1 winner. Yep, yep. I was talking to former jockey Cliffy Clare once uh, doing an interview for Sky Racing and he was talking about his golden slipper win in the 1960s on a filly called Sweet Embrace. She went out at 66 to 1 and Cliff said, you know, I, I, I thought she'd run like a 66 to 1 pop. He said, I'll tell you what, at the half mile she's 8 to 1. He said, "On the yep. home turn, she's six to four. <laughs> yeah, it's, ama- it's it, amazing. Some horses just, you know, the right race, the right day, and mm. everything just pans out a hundred percent, and they come out and run a, a life's best, so to speak. And yeah, they walk in maideners and come out Group One winners. That's mm. what keeps everyone in the great game. You know, to a certain extent, you just don't know. You just don't know. Now, Pete, we've been talking about your highs so far." But we've got to mention your all-time low because it's part of the story. 2010, the sky fell in when you and your good mate, Blake Shin, were both outed for betting offences, something the authorities frown upon as James MacDonald and Damien Oliver also found out on other occasions. Now, many of the bets were processed through your wife's tab account and it triggered a storm. And you and Blake were both outed for twelve months. Uh, that was that was a real kick in the guts. Yeah, it was certainly a hard time at, at the time. And um, <coughs> as you said, the betting the betting was through Elaine's betting account, um, which I'd kind of had for a, a long time, you know. Mm. And um, but at the at the end of the day, John, you know, we got twelve months. We deserved the twelve months um, for the offences and. Um, you know, I think 
you can't really say say a lot about it. It, it wasn't like we were mm. mistreated or misjudged or anything, but it was certainly a hard time mm. to uh, survive for 12 months. But to keep myself occupied, I, I went to TAFE and did Yeah, this is an amazing making. story. You did a boiler-making course. Yeah, done a boiler-making course mm. while I was out for 12 months to keep myself um, occupied, so to speak, because... Mm. Um, you, you've got to do something, and the problem the problem with being a jockey is that you have absolutely no other talents or, mm. <laughs> or anything else to fall back on, and I think that's what yeah. people probably don't realise um, at, at, at a lot of times is that uh, in order to be a jockey, you, you probably start it when you're 14, 15, yeah. 16. Mm. So by the time you get get older, and yeah, naturally they say, well, you should know better, but you know, everyone should know better. But um, when something like that happens, you've got absolutely, you've got no experience, no talents at doing anything else. So it's not like you can get 12 months today and then go and find a job in a week's time. No. Especially no. When, when we were disqualified. So it wasn't like mm. we could go and muck out boxes in a stable or go and just ride track work for 12 months. You, you can't mm. walk onto a race course. So mm. when all you've done for... 20-odd years at that point in time of your life mm. and then to say that you can't do it for the next 12 months, well, mm. it's probably mentally the hardest thing is the fact that you have absolutely no idea what you're going to do because mm. you have absolutely no experience doing anything yeah, else. that's the point, yeah. And you have no references of any other occupation mm. around. So, so you know, it's basically like someone that's got a normal job. If mm. if they were told, well, you got to got to sit in your house for the next twelve months and not do anything and not get paid, mm. well, it brings a lot of financial pressure because as much as you want to go and work mm. and earn an income, you simply can't because you don't have any experience doing anything. Yeah, else. my word. That boiler making course, Pete, was a five phase thing, and you completed four. I wonder if it's possible you might go and do the fifth phase one day. Look, I'll I'll definitely go back and do the 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 last the last stage of the course. I done mm. I done four stages of it, and then uh, naturally got permission to start riding work a couple of months before I come back race riding. Mm. So once I started riding work, I um put the put the welding rod up and mm. concentrated on getting my weight back in check and getting fit and all the rest of it that you have to do to be a jockey and. Mm. Um, but I'll certainly um, go back and do the last stage at, at some stage over the next few years. I hope you do, mate. That'll be something to be proud of. Yeah, because I love, I love fabricating things and I love welding and mm. it's certainly something different from being surrounded by horses all day. Time's on the wing, Pete, but I've got to mention a horse that you've already mentioned, your song, who was another Group 1 winner for you in a, a big race in Brisbane. Uh, you rode him in seven of his nine starts. You won a couple of two-year-olds on him. You ran second in the run to the Rose and then the BTC Cup in Brisbane and didn't he win that day? Five lengths was the margin. Anthony Cummings was the trainer and I think you made it clear earlier he's probably the best horse you've been on. He's probably the best horse I've been on. I remember going to Brisbane, Rain Affair was in the race and the track I think was a heavy 10 and he was about a dollar forty. I think, Rain Affair and... Because um, you're such a superior wet tracker mm. that your song loomed up to him at the point of the corner, and um, when Rain Affair come off the bridle, I think Huey Bowman was on it at the time. Mm. I still hadn't moved, yeah. and um, but we probably got we probably got the the first glimpse of how good that horse was in the run to the rose when he ran second to Piero and he loomed up to Piero and put him under pressure, and he was flying. Like mm. he was absolutely flying at that at that point in time, Piero. Everyone mm. knows how good a how good a horse he was. So that was probably mm. the first glimpse we got to really know how good your song was. And mm. he was his career ended ended abruptly. He bled. I think it was in the it was in the ten thousand or one of them races. The Stradbroke might have been that he bled. So his career ended, you know, really prematurely, and he he was off to stud. Yeah, and so, he's done a fair job at stud too. Yeah, he's done a good job at stud, and you know they mm. win races, and he's thrown some handy horses. So uh, he's done a nice job. But I think he's a prime example of you know day and age where horses 
could have got better as I got older, but they just don't get that opportunity because there's so much money to be made at stud with them. Mm. You and Elaine are the proud parents of 16-year-old Haley, who couldn't be described uh, as a racing nut, but she's certainly a horse enthusiast and she shows a bit of talent, you tell me, on the show circuit. Yeah, she's going really well. She does three-day eventing and, you know, she's very keen with it all and she's got a good horse here at the moment that a trainer at Warwick Farm gave her, Bruce Cross, gave her a horse that he wasn't much good as a racehorse and mm. he's a terrific horse and she's going really well and she's um, she might be a better rider than her mum and dad. Mm. But, um, so hopefully she can continue to progress in that area and you just never know where they get this day and age but she's going really terrific, terrific mm. with it. Yours is an unusual story, you know. You didn't have the slightest interest in racing growing up. You went into a stable to duck school. You learned to ride on Wayne Nichols' pony, and here you are, a multiple Group 1 winning jockey and now a successful trainer. Despite the odd setback here and there, I don't think you'd swap too much, would you? No, I don't think, I don't think I'd swap, swap anything. But I think the only thing I'd swap, John, is probably the race ball. Of course. Apart from that... Mm. Apart from that, everything else is experience and, you know, certain things make you tougher and uh, it's been, look, it's been a great career and it's been a great industry to be involved in and, you know, I hope that I'm involved in it for another 20 years. So uh, I certainly wouldn't swap much about my life at all, to be quite honest with you, John. I've had, a, you know, a really good life and um, it's been very enjoyable. Pete, thank you very much for your time. Lovely to have you on the podcast. It's long overdue and uh, I hope the winners continue to flow. Thanks, John. It's been a pleasure being on, on your show. Peter Robel on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. It came as no surprise when English Managing Director Mark Webster announced that South Australian GTRA would fill the company's slot in the Everest at Randwick on October the 16th. GTRA ran in the English slot last year, coming from well back to finish a strong third to Classic Legend. The horse stayed in Sydney and two weeks later won the $1 million Yes, Yes, Yes stakes at Rosehill Gardens. Not long after, he presented with a knee problem which required surgery for the removal of a bone chip and then a long spell. On resuming, GTRA ran third in the Group 1 Goodwood Handicap and was then taken to Brisbane where he was unplaced in the Kingsford Smith Cup only 2.8 lengths from the winner after a wide run and a pretty hefty check in the straight. Fittingly, he was purchased by trainer Gordon Richards at the 2017 England Premier sale for just $41,000. He's taken his large ownership syndicate on a fantastic journey with 10 wins and 12 placings for more than $3.2 million. Inglis and GTRA get together for the second time in the world's richest race on turf, the fifth running of the Tab Everest at Royal Randwick on October the 16th. 